Welcome to Neuroscience's Talk Shop. Uh, today's March 2nd, and we have with us Christiane Linster. Hi, Christiane. Hi. She's professor in the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior at Cornell. Uh, she studies how neuromodulation influences information coding and memory processes in the olfactory system using um, a coordinated arsenal of behavioral and electrophysiological experiments, as well as a heavy dose of predictive modeling. Um, and around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. Uh, so, Christian, you have a very cool story about how um, acetylcholine is differentially recruited in encoding um, odor representations, associating them, and ultimately recalling them in the uh, olfactory bulb piriform cortex. But before we get into that, um, can we just talk first about how do you begin to frame this question from your perspective? Um, this idea of computational effects of neuromodulation. Where, how, do, how do you start a problem? Do you start with the, the computational, the cellular elements, the realism, the behavior? Where, where is your sort of first point of entry on this? So this, of course, would depend, right? But I think in general, my the way I proceed would be to look at a brain area, let's say the olfactory cortex. Um, Ask myself, what does it need to do uh, if we know what is it doing? What are its inputs and what are its outputs as far known? And then first start by creating a simplified network structure of this area and asking what can it compute? Like just taking the neural elements we know about, what are its computation capabilities? And the second step would be to then say, okay, now we know if, let's say, it provides a social memory function. And we know if acetylcholine comes in, it depolarizes the neurons, changes plasticity, so it creates a different kind of network with different capabilities. So it's kind of looking first at how the computational framework of that network would be changed by bringing in one or other neuromodulator, and always trying to put it in perspective with behavior. So can you say something about your model? So that in terms of layers, elements, what it, what uh, sort of is there something special about three layer models? First of all, like is that it somehow ends up that all the most beautiful models that I tend to see tend to be these three layer models? But can you say something about the model itself? It's too complicated with four, and it's too easy, simple with two. So three is the sweet spot. I don't know about three, but so the olfactory bulb itself has three layers. If you want to think about it that way, it has sensory inputs. It has what's called the glomerular layer, which is the first layer of processing with local interneurons. And then the granule cell, microcell layer, which is a second layer of processing with a new set of interneurons. That information is sent out to piriform cortex, and piriform cortex is a three-layer cortex, which is different from, what, seven-layer cortex? I guess, six? or six, I or don't seven, know what, how much idea. the other ones have. But So it yeah. is a simplified type of cortex, like the hippocampus is. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not sure what you were asking about the model. Well, there's a third element in the model, which is the, which is also the, the cholinergic neurons, right? Right. So you have three different brain regions. Two of the three, at least, have three uh, layers inside them, right. and the other one not. The other one is... This one's a nucleus, so it's just presumably it has no... One group. Yeah, no layers. And then there's there's also this um, this interesting part of this, which is modeling a, a network's equivalence to behavior, which is sort of 
cool and, and different, at least from things that I've read. So can you say something about that? Yeah, could, let me, could, maybe I can ask this in a different way because it's this, this kind of interesting what you can do that's parallel. So, because one of the things you've been interested in in forever is the idea of modulation, right? And it seems like what you get, if you ask what the uh, a, a an area does, when you focus on modulation, you don't really have that question, right? You have kind of the range of things that it does, or it's a it's a much richer set of what it does, and you're not trying to get it to do one thing. Because one, one, one of the drawbacks of a bunch of models is you get the model, I want the model to do this, and you make a model that does that, and you say, okay, great, because it does that thing, but you're always trying to get it to do that thing. And when you when you have modulation, right, you're saying that, well, it has to do multiple things in, in a way that's reasonable, and they have to fit together so that you can, you can modulate it from one to the other. And so you have now a range of behaviors, and presumably uh, the same thing has to do multiple things that you can vary things. And so you have that both in the model, and then you have some in the behavior. And but the way that you measure things at the level of the model and the behavior are quite different. But it seems like the modulation is the key thing that allows you to have to change in the right kind of ways. Is that so, so I guess one way to look at it is to say, from an engineering point of view, if you want to study how something works, you have to perturb it, right? And so one way to perturb a neural system is to bring in a neural modulator or prevent the action of a neurotransmitter or do a lesion or something, right? Something that changes things. So I think if we can do the same perturbation in an awake behaving animal, then in a slice, then in an acetized animal, and then in a model, and then they need to all change in the same direction, then we're onto something. And sometimes that doesn't work, right? But what you said about the model has to do everything, I think is the biggest challenge, right? Because you can make a model for a two-auto discrimination task, and then you suddenly realize, oh, but it can also memorize odorants for this long or that long, so you have to add that function without losing the previous function. And I find that the biggest challenge, that you want to have a system that you can add to without losing function. Um, and then the biggest challenge, I think, is what do you measure in a model, right? If you say, how good is the model? How well is it working? What are you actually measuring? Are you measuring signal-to-noise ratio? Then how does that correspond to behavior? Are you measuring memory capacity? How do you measure that behaviorally? So, so that's why I try to have some kind of behavioral correlate, but it's not always trivial, right, so, to find that. One of the premises of the, as I understand it, of, the, of your idea about acetylcholine is that there's really just one acetylcholine signal, and it's going both to the olfactory bulb and the olfactory cortex. And I guess the reason for thinking that is because both of them are innervated by the same group of cholinergic neurons. And I don't know if it's really known or whether it's just assumed that within that group of cholinergic neurons, there's no differentiation between the neurons that go to the olfactory bulb and the ones that go to the cortex, that it's a collateralized projection. So that it really is just one signal. And because a lot of the thinking about, about other modulators has been confused by the idea that norepinephrine ought to do the same thing no matter where it is, and that doesn't turn out to be true at all. But in this case, the idea is acetylcholine ought to be 
its actions ought to be coordinated across these group of different neurons at different levels because there's really just one acetylcholine signal and the olfactory bulb doesn't get a different one from the olfactory cortex. Is that is that really right? I mean, is it anatomically correct? How much do we know about that? There are some old anatomical papers showing the same neurons projection to both areas. Um, but that's, you know, it's not 100% like this is how it is kind of story. And you also have to remember that acetylcholine acts on at least two types of major receptors that can have very different actions, right? So even if you had the same acetylcholine coming into two networks, depending on the distribution of receptors, for example, it could act very differently. Oh, yeah, so at the right? cellular so level, can, it could be incredibly diverse. Right, it can but regulate itself. at the functional itself. level, it ought, we could expect, it would be reasonable for us to expect that all those things would be working functionally to produce a single result. And that's, I think that's kind of the basis of the modeling. Idea. Right, that's the basis of it, yeah, because that seems to be the, the more constrained version given what we know right now. But that's what make that's what at least potentially makes it incredibly beautiful to the neurophysiologist, right? Because we have this myriad of different things. Acetylcholine can change synaptic plasticity and excitability of neurons, and it can actually make EPSCs. And it, but in some other cells, it doesn't. But it can change probability of transmitter release. It just goes on and on this big list. And as a at least as a student. Uh, like me, studying something like this, you can start to despair of ever organizing that into one thing mm -hmm. at all. But your model organizes it all into one thing. Is it, that not true? It tries. It tries. <laughs> and it, it tries it also by by thinking functionally, right? So uh, in the olfactory bulb, based on our behavior results, in the olfactory bulb, Asticolin does something that changes how well animals can discriminate odorants. In the in vivo electrophysiology, acetylcholine renders microcell odor responses more specific. So that points to the same idea, right? So in the model, by applying acetylcholine to increasing lateral inhibition, we get those two things. Then we have this result with um, speed of acquisition by modulating muscarinic receptors. And there, I mean, this is a hypothesis of mine, that it's the increase in synchrony that would lead to faster plasticity because of spikes being more synchronous. And again, now that's an assumption, but it does correlate well with the behavioral results we see, assuming that olfactory cortex acts as an associative memory. So it's like it's taking the cellular pieces that we know but putting them in such a way as to make them interact with the function we think that network is doing. Now, we could put them into the network very differently and not get the same result. So, of course, there are always assumptions, but I think the, the, the best you can do as a scientist is make your assumptions as logical as you can and then try and destroy them. Right by doing some clever physiology or some clever behavior to kind of pick at your assumptions and see which ones survive and which ones don't. But, but we like don't it, have all the knowledge yet, right? So. But in the behavior, it's it's kind of interesting the way you're linking the the roles of of cholinergic modulation in the behavior because you have different time scales. So I was trying to think of if it's not a monolithic thing, then you'd want to say 
it does you want to have the behavior to be different things. So this kind of mod cholinergic modulation is doing this thing for this behavior, not for that behavior. And then you may want to have different modulations in different places based on two things. It's not one mm -hmm. functional thing, right? So the way it's often thought of is kind of an online regulation of attention, right? So you cholinergic modulation, you attend to something, you want to turn up the game and clean things up. Whatever, that's kind of the background thing. But you're also now talking about using that modulation through learning over multiple trials, over sessions, and that modulation changes and the level of how you react to a stimulus from the outside uh, changes over that long time. Now, do you think that they could be... So you have long-term changes of how the cholinergic modulation gets uh, engaged, but are there... Is that different than the way behaviorally, like short-term uh, uh, modulation would be? Like if the rat is motivated to do, you know, some attention versus non-attending task in a learned versus non-learned kind of odor. So there's a, two different ways that the mod, the cholinergic modulation is different, and would they you have four different possibilities or something? Right. So I'll give you an example of one experiment where we actually managed to address that question, right? So if we, if we have rats sniff very low concentration odorants, well, this is actually an example of noradrenaline, but bear with me. So if we add noradrenaline to the system, they can detect odorants that are many orders of magnitudes lower than if we don't add noradrenaline to the system. Um, so, but that's not really meaningful because we're adding the noradrenaline that's not normally there, right? But now if we, um, so under normal circumstances, let's say they detect 10 to the minus 2 pascal. We add noradrenaline, they detect 10 to the minus 6 pascal. If we make it worth their while to detect 10 to the minus 6 by making them hungry and rewarding them, they can detect 10 to the minus 6 no problem, right? And then if we block noradrenaline, they can't do it anymore. So this is a situation where in one task, they don't seem to engage their noradrenergic system because they have no interest in doing so. But if they're hungry and they want their food, they seem to engage that system to get to the food. Right? And so in the same experiment with acetylcholine, there was no effect at all. So in that case, acetylcholine doesn't seem to be engaged. Um, so I think you're totally right, right? So especially if we block these neuromodulators and we don't get an effect, I mean, what does that mean? Does that mean it's not engaged in that behavior or does it just mean it's not being engaged, right? And so obviously there's more to it than just internal regulation. There's reward, there's stress, there's, you know, possibly some other way to turn on the system that will add to what it does. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So with the, the acetylcholine system that you describe as a closed loop, it's sort of a self-regulating system, which do you, do you imagine that the adrenaline has some sort of feedback into this? Or is there, there's a sort of a broadcast signal that kind of gets uh, things up to speed when they need to be up to speed based on some coordinator down in the basal forebrain? Or yeah, so while my model shows proof of concept that this internal self-regulation could work, I don't actually believe that it works only that way, right? 
because as Todd pointed out, it's also been shown many times that it's more engaged in a situation where the animal is being attentive. Unfortunately, in the kind of tasks we usually do, the animal has to be attentive, right? But on the other hand, if we have them do something very simple, like be rewarded for banana and not for cinnamon, we can block that cholinergic system all we want and there's no effect. But if we have them do something very difficult, like differentiate two enantiomers of limonene, then they need that cholinergic system to make it work. Now, is that attention? Or does that just show that you need this additional compression of tuning curves provided by acetylcholine to do the task, right? That I don't know. I mean, we, we can call it what we want, but it could be that acetylcholine is just as active in one case than in the other, but it's not necessary in that one case, but it is necessary in the other. So that doesn't, doesn't really answer your question, but I think sometimes we have a chicken and an egg problem where there's only this much we can measure because we have to make the animal do something we can observe. And so that's our only measure. Maybe it'd be good, though, to say something about what the, uh, about what the closed-loop idea, why the closed-loop idea is so attractive and this balance between plasticity and stability of learning. Would you mind saying something about that? Yeah, so the idea here is that I think we, let's say when we live our lives, right, we can't always learn everything, right? We have to make somehow decisions. I find personally that I don't usually decide now I'm going to learn this, right? I mean, sometimes you do, but you also walk through life and learn things without making that decision. So if we don't make that decision, there might be some kind of internal regulation of deciding, you know, what needs to be learned and what doesn't need to be learned. And in this case, it was more of a, uh, also a computer science problem where, you know, usually when we create networks, we say, now learn, now recall, now learn, now recall. And we wanted to see how this could actually be done in the brain without that um, outside person saying, you need to learn, you need to recall. So to have it work that the system would know, I've already learned this, well, I haven't learned this yet, and just kind of regulate itself. Does, is that answer your question? Yeah, so it's sort of, I, I guess every time, uh, every time I need to, I smell something, my olfactory cortex says, is this a smell I recognize? Right? That's, I guess, in, at least in your view, that's basically what the olfactory cortex yeah. does. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it's, it's sort of a recognition memory, and then it can specify this is the this is that smell and that's that smell. And as long as that's working, it doesn't need to learn anything new. And so basically, you, you don't want it to to uh, start messing with what it's already learned unnecessarily. You don't want to break it when it's working. The signal that something needs to be learned is just a smell that can't be identified. Is that right? I mean, I smell something. And I don't know what it is. At that point, is that when I need to switch into learning? I, I guess in some ways, yeah. And inside the system, that I don't know that is signaled by low activity in olfactory cortex. Because the intrinsic fibers of cortex have not been engaged in that in processing that signal. So somewhere there, there must have been something that said, I smelled something, and then 
and, and I, should, I should have had some activity in my olfactory cortex, but I didn't, mm-hmm. right? Because otherwise you wouldn't know the difference between not recognizing something and not smelling it in the first place. Right. So uh, where is that comparison made? Do you have an idea about where that kind of comparison could be made? I see. So whether I'm constantly learning a blank odor? Yeah. But I... Um, so if I smell something new and my olfactory cortex basically doesn't change its activity because it doesn't recognize that, then it, then what turns on the cholinergic neuron to tell it you should... Or is the cholinergic neuron going to then be activated by default whenever the level of activity in the olfactory cortex is low? So in, in, the, in my model, the cholinergic system is baseline activity is high. So basically it's right. saying if you don't recognize... A smell right now, it isn't because there's no smell. It's because you don't recognize the smell there is. Right. And then, but of course, we have a lot of spontaneous activity in the model. So we also regulated it in such that it's not learning its own spontaneous activity because otherwise you'd have one big attractor for everything, right? So the, the thresholds for plasticity have to be above your spontaneous activity. So you have to be more correlated with those spikes who have to have four or five neurons at the same time being active to even engage your plasticity. And that comes from the actual stimulus. Because you don't want to learn that, the, the that, noise. That right? change has to come from the actual yes, stimulus. Yes, that change has to come from the actual stimulus. Yeah. So it has to go above the noise or above the baseline level to be So captured. that's part of the olfactory bulb's job, right, is to, is to organize right. the activity of smells so that... So you can't ignore any of it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, you could. It's potentially you could use it in a different mode where you think about learning about learning the general statistics of the world, right? And it's not an object or something that you've seen a lot of. And that's what you're doing most of the time. And you are just learning all the time about what the background statistics of odors and molecules comes in. Uh, but when you get something particular that you've seen before, it's like, I don't, I know what that, I want to shut it down. I don't want to pay attention to it because this is something particular that I've seen before. And then so you shut it down by shutting off. I mean, it's more like that. When you get something you recognize, you turn off learning, right? Right, because you don't have to learn it again. Yeah, and you don't want it to, the new version that's a little bit off to change your memory of what it is and, and so forth. But also the part we're forgetting is also forgetting, right? So synapses that aren't, again, I mean, synapses will undergo synaptic plasticity to be stronger, but if they're not reactivated in that same way again and again, they would probably slowly decay. Otherwise, we'd never forget anything, right? So you have to add forgetting into such a model as well so that, you know, you learn a smell once, but you don't encounter it ever again. It will actually decay. That memory will decay. That's the safe capacity, away. right? That's just it's the safe capacity, but also just so you don't, you know... Just crank up yeah. the weight vector and Right, and then forever. I imagine that, you know, if you... I mean, if you're the mouse, and I train you to be rewarded for this odor every day, right? Let's say if I train them for one day, they have a 24-hour memory. If I train them for five consecutive days, they have a memory for three weeks. Right? So the more you learn, the slower you forget. How because do you implement that in your model? 
Um, basically, by so the learning is a Habian type learning, so you accumulate correlated activity and you change your synaptic weights, and then for each synaptic weight, I have a slow exponential decay that just kind of happens, and so if these are never reactivated again, they'll just slowly decay back to baseline um, to free them up or to allow forgetting. And if you put a threshold on, you know, whatever, recognizing, then... So the more you learn, the slower you'll be forgetting back to some baseline. Um, so that's another piece I didn't really talk about. But slower meaning that you would have the same decay, so you just yeah, start... Yeah, the same time constant, you just start from a higher point. That's right. the easiest way to implement it. What about uh, extinction? Do you see extinction in piriform cortex that changes the activity to an order? Like if you've been trained on something and then you extinguish it, uh, uh, do you extinguish to odors and stuff like that? I think that's just the faster forgetting, right? Well, no, a lot of extinction is, is active suppression, mm -hmm. meaning that you don't forget it, you have to inhibit it. So right. These are often things you have. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I don't, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. There's also a layer of this that's, uh, that would totally override all of this too, right? Like there's certain combinations that would have like universal salience. I don't know at what level those would be encoded, like, you know, smell of blood. Strawberries from mice. That's what Jim Bowers really? said. Strawberries? The, the yeah. more receptors huh. respond to strawberry than anything else for a mouse. But it may not be behaviorally salient. <laughs> I'm talking about things true, that just trigger, maybe things that just, I mean, that sort of bypass all of this, and then they are actually responsible for the arousal response, like blood and carrion. And I mean, how does how does that work? Are they these things at the ideas? level? Yeah, like like you know, like we have in the the taste system potentially, right? I mean, are there sort of anchored combinations of molecules that when we see these, forget it, everything else goes away, the model shuts down, and you have an immediate, you know, you have a change in arousal. Because smell is such a potent signal for these kinds of things, right? I mean, for, for behavioral states in general, for yeah. evolutionarily. So there's, I mean, the outputs of the olfactory bulb were the accessory olfactory bulb, which is more for, like, heavy, sticky molecules that could trigger, like, avoidance, for example. Um, like innate fear, right? Predator odors um, that you want to not process. You want to just run away. So does that happen at the level of piriform cortex, or is that like enter? Like where does where do we understand that? From? I don't think anybody knows that. Um, I almost assumed it would be a signal to some more, you know, direct like freezing or whatever center, but I don't think we know where that connection is made. Um, we did a long study with rats about innate aversion and, and um, liking, and there are some odors that they really avoid. Um, and you can you can't extinguish that, like you can't. You can train them on those odors. Mm -hmm. They'll just it'll take. Actually, it was an interesting study because we we basically just had did like you know we had fifty odors and just looked at which ones they liked, which ones they didn't like, and then we paired them with each other so pairwise. And then we train them. So if you train, if you reward a liked odor and not reward a non-liked odor, they learn a lot faster. But if you reward reward a disliked odor, then they will still learn. It just takes so many more trials. So yes, you can override that. I mean, we didn't have anything in there that mice. I think 
have more innate fears than rats. So for mice, if you give them certain predator orders, they just freeze, and rats don't do that. I guess they're not as afraid of as many things as mice are. Um, but you can change what's called the salience or the preference of an odor by rewarding it. And then you make it a preferred odor, even in the absence of reward. Um, so where that's coded, I don't know. How does, do you think some of the language of neuromodulation, in terms of people talking about sort of signals, attention, arousal, these sorts of things that are associated with this idea of neuromodulation, do you think some of that is can be obfuscated, <laughs> you know, in, in terms of these sorts of approaches where you're talking about something very particular and specific and modeling it in a, in a very you know, refined capacity. Um, I'm just wondering what you think about some of the, some of the neuromodulation literature is just kind of, you know, inverted use and attention and arousal. And it doesn't really, I don't know, Charlie's giving me this look like, what are you talking about? I think in the end, time to edit, you know, you have to be able to put that vague vocabulary into neurons and synapses to understand, right? And so, whether you say, so I would say, this animal has a problem differentiating the two enhancements of limonene because there's no acetylcholine and the curves are not separated, right? Somebody else could explain the, the same thing by saying, oh, they're not as attentive because they don't have acetylcholine. I mean, you could interpret the same situation very mechanistically or very cognitively. So, But in the end, no matter what big words you put on it, like attention, you still have to go down and say, where in the synapses and neurons now is that acting to produce this outcome, right? And so the more we do that, I think the more maybe we go more to mechanistical situations, but you can reinterpret all my behavioral data as attention if you just think about it that way. Eventually, maybe we find out what attention means. Yeah, I mean, if you, you know, if you, if you're distracted because, you know, whatever, your dad's sick and you keep thinking about him and you're doing something you do every day that's very easy, you're going to be okay, right? But if you're trying to do something really difficult that you have to focus on that day, you're not going to be okay because you're distracted. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean your motor system isn't working as well because whatever distracts you is overriding that, you know? So I, I don't, yeah, I, I think it has to be reconciliated. Um, What's the role of the spontaneous activity in the olfactory bulb? I don't, I didn't realize there was that much because it seems like such a sparse code to begin with. Do we know what? I don't know what the role is. Um, there's always, I mean, you you can't shut it off, right? You're breathing, so there's always something. These are, sp- these are like action potentials that are actually, this is like output, yeah. spontaneous um, output. Okay. Um, I always think of neurons like an engineer. So if you want to run a transistor, right, it has a curve. And if you want to use it as an amplifier, if you have to ramp it up from zero and go up, you lose time and you have nonlinearities. But if you connect it in such a way that it sits in the middle of its linear curve, you can go up and down. That's kind of how I think of neurons, right? If you don't have spontaneous activity, inhibition is not going to 
actually be a signal or mean anything. Yeah, so grace. <laughs> if you want to be able to go up and down, you have to be sitting somewhere where that's meaningful. Mm -hmm. So what about the, uh, all the stuff for the, they used to tell the general story about, you know, taking new old things in and learning new things. What about uh, other sensory modalities? Because there are different circuits, right, to the olfactory system. So is it the same? You just, you know, do you know how much of this stuff would translate into neocortex? And would it be the same, different, similar? I don't know if you thought about I think it could translate really easily because in in the end, like the principles of computation seem to be very similar in most brain areas, right? The, the things you have, feed-forward inhibition, feedback inhibition, lateral feedback excitation, plasticity. I mean, the actual elements of computation you have that you can stick together to do stuff, they're not that different depending on where you are, I think. So. I hope so. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, otherwise it's going to be terrible, right? So, so where are the points of alignment and departure with the hippocampal level encoding and recall operations um, as far as neuromodulators? So I think my Castleman thinks uh, very similarly about encoding and recall at that level. Um, he thinks of it more as like sleep and wake or theta oscillations coming and you would recall and encode in every theta cycle because that's the colon comes and goes. But um, it's very much a similar idea. Um, I prefer using the olfactory system because I know what comes in. Right With the hippocampus, it's more vague. Right, You don't know what the signal is anymore once it gets there because it's been transformed, whereas the olfactory system was so close to the periphery, we kind of have a handle on what we think the animal is actually using as a sensory stimulus. I think once you get to the hippocampus, it's a combination of the room and the context and the smell and the box, and so I find it harder to, to think about that. How many smells can we identify? I mean, there is some capacity to, the, to this object recognition memory thing, and there, if it's right, then it's all done by an auto-associator mechanism. Mm -hmm. There have been lots of studies of the capacity of those kind of networks. I don't know how realistic or biological those estimations are, but uh, don't don't we know? I haven't psychophysics folks figured out how many different things we can recognize, how many different smells we can recognize. I don't know. It, wouldn't it be great to know, you know, what the capacity of the of the thing is that we're making a model of? Mm -hmm and then ask whether the model that we make has the same capacity as the real thing. Right, right. But one thing that's pretty interesting uh, related to that is that you get different answers depending on whether you're talking about real recall or recognition. Mm -hmm. And based, a lot of the, what the model is... is I never have to do real recall of smells, right? Well, I never have to think lemon and then smell it. No, but the question is, what is that thing? So is the question of whether, do you know what that thing is, or do you know just that you've smelled it before? Right? right. So, But this model, the model of the olfactory cortex is just recognizing it isn't knowing what it is. not being able to put a semantic. No, no, I know, but I'm just saying that the, the whole point of the, the cholinergic, you know, shutting off the cholinergic modulation is the key to say that you've learned it before. 
that you recognized it before. That is the signal for whether you recognize it before is that you get a suppression of the choline. Yeah, but that's just, is is this something I've smelled before? It isn't, do I know what it is? Right, so the question is now, is that, can you see that as a, I mean, taking this further, in the pattern of distinguishing, say, piriform cortex activity, whether you can discriminate two things, whether it's, you know, smell A or smell B, versus have I smelled A or B together versus a novel odor C. And you might be able to see the, the difference, like in the, as the performance of discrimination, say as you forget, maybe that your ability to, to engage all of the piriform cortex in terms of total activity or something would be similar for things that you can no longer discriminate them, but you can still tell the difference between something that uh, is This is olfactory chords versus olfactory notes. Yeah. Right. Something like that. But it doesn't work in isolation. I think to recognize it, you have once have to know, no, this is pizza and it smells like this, and then somewhere else in your brain you connect it to pizza. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I and I imagine there are a lot more things that we recognize as having been smelled before than there are things that we could put a label on and yeah. know what they are. So I was just guessing, make it easy and just try to, it's supposed to be a just a recognition memory. I think the problem of how to know how the brain puts a meaning to the stimuli is probably a little harder. And but see, when we'll we do ask, that tomorrow. When we ask animals, the act, people always think, oh, you know, the animal recognizes the odor. But really, in the kind of tasks we do, all the animal has to know whether this is rewarded or not. Yeah. It doesn't have to know what it is. Yeah. If it's different, it only has to know it's rewarded. So that's very different. That's kind of like recognition. It's very different from knowing what it what it is. Right. So. so where does that reward signal impinge? Because there's no VTA dopamine coming in. There's no overt. I mean, where we don't know anything. VTA comes into the. It does come to the cortex. It's local, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm at the uh, olfactory tubercle. A tubercle. Olfactory tubercle is a big dopamine rich place. Mm -hmm. Right. And olfactory tubercle is connected to what else? Or it's its own sort of little self-contained? Uh, it gets input from the bulb and from the cortex. Um, where did it go to? Yeah. It's projections in thalamus, I know. I don't know where else. It's thalamus one of those mystery areas. People are starting, some people are now starting to work on it. It's kind of a mystery. So the other output areas are... Um, so the direct mitral cells project directly to the entorhinal cortex also? Oh, after, so there's a lot of outputs. It's anterior olfactory nucleus. There's something called the hippocampal continuation, something called the tinea tacta. Then there's olfactory cortex, um, tubercle. I think entorhinal amygdala, hypothalamus. There's a lot of connections. That's why smell so important. Yeah. <laughs> it's everywhere in your brain. Thank you for being with us. It's been great. Thank you, Christiane Winster. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm -hmm.